Hello everyone, welcome to the season 2 premiere of What's Going On. I hope that everyone during this winter storm in the East Coast um, are bundled up at home. And so we'll just start. What's Going On is a podcast series where we have important, relevant and sometimes difficult conversations to inspire you to start having your own. For today's episode, we are celebrating Black excellence and talking about ways we can uplift our Black peers. Part of what we'll be talking um, is about Black historical figures whose achievements were covered over by racism and oppression over the years. And as we commemorate by reliving their legacies today, let's be reminded that the same has happened to Indigenous folks, their history, and even their lives. What's Going On is by Suffolk University's Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion in Boston, Massachusetts. Hence, we would like to honor the Mashapi Wapanoa, Akina Wapanoa, Nipma, and the Massachusetts tribal nations whom this land originally belonged. It is imperative to acknowledge the Massachusetts tribe, who historically lived in areas that make up present-day Greater Boston. We honor the diverse tribes, people, and respect their connection to this land. As we, today, as we discuss today's topic, let us remember to advocate alongside Indigenous community for their rights. To know more about the land you are on and ways you can support the Indigenous community, please visit www.native-land.ca and for those of us in Massachusetts, maindigenous.org. With that, I would like to welcome our guest speaker for today, Aria Ilias. Um, it's nice to see everyone. Um, thank you for coming. Um, my name is Aria. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a sophomore here at Suffolk, and I am a law major. So thank you for everyone coming, and thank you, Cindy, for inviting me today. Of course, and we're so excited to talk to you um, about Black ex- Excellence today. So for this special episode, we kind of have like a special sequence for what we'll be talking about. And let's start with talking about Black excellence. So with the recent events that are happening, we know that there is an American history that's, de- that's being deliberately left out of the textbooks and of um, our lives, specifically Black history, like with the Wall Street massacre in Tulsa. And so in the spirit of resistance, would you like to tell us about the Black historical figures that we should all know about? Uh, yeah, so um, in preparation for this podcast, I chose three individuals. Um, they all span from different impacts within our normal society, whether it's impacting the Black community or just American society as a whole, um, because I feel like people tend to assume that these huge inventors are only white cisgender males, which is definitely not the case. Um, so I chose three individuals, one from a more um, just everyday daily use usage product section, one from the STEM or science field, and then one from music. So the first person that I would like to talk about is Madam CJ Walker. Um, A lot of you guys are probably familiar with her, um, but if you're not, she was born in 1867 in um, Louisiana um, and passed away in 1919. But she had a lot, she had a huge black hair care product line. Um, And especially during the 1800s, um, and even now, there was this idea that hair care products were only, they're like 
1D, like they would only apply to everyone's hair and that's it. And even as a young person, um, before I really got in tune with my hair and how to take care of it, I definitely assumed that any hair care product would work for my hair because there were only white hair care products that only worked for one type of hair, which was accommodating to white hair, which is not the case. There are so many textures, there are so many, you know, styles and like we just have a lot we have a different hair type and that's okay and we need products in order to accommodate to that so she has an entire black hair care line um, and she was also the first self-made black woman billionaire that is recorded in american history so i think it positively contributes to the idea of black hair care now because i was a able to become so much more educated on how my hair works, what porosity means, you know, um, how to take care of it because of um, the work that Madam CJ Walker began with and all of her work and all of the ideas and the structures that she has for her business trickle down into what hair care products are like today. So that's the first person I wanted to emphasize on. The second one is relating to the field of science. Um, I remember when I was like five or six, I wanted to be a civil engineer. Um, and then I sort of changed my, my structures um, or what I wanted to do career wise. Um, but I was definitely inspired by Shirley Ann Jackson. Um, she is still alive today. Um, and she was born in 1946 and she's 74 years old. Um, and she's a physicist. So she was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate at MIT in physics. Um, we can definitely understand because we are a predominantly white institution that for marginalized communities and more specifically women of color, it is definitely very difficult to go into fields that are dominated by white men. It's seen within the STEM field, it's seen in the field of law. I'm in the law field and I see it every day. Um, there's a form of sexism and racism that you have to deal with in an everyday basis that is almost forcing you to not go into the field. And it's not be, and it's not the idea of like, oh, marginalized communities or BIPOC folk aren't, they don't care about these career fields. They don't wanna go into these career fields. That's not the case. It's because they're shunned out. They're forced out of the field and they're meant to feel uncomfortable so that they don't even try. Um, so I feel like emphasizing on Shirley Ann Jackson, she earned a doctorate at MIT in physics and she was the first African-American woman to do so. And she has also impacted you know, the daily uses that we use too, like fiber optic cables, a caller ID, a portable fax. Those are all things that we rely on. And we just don't even think about like, huh, where did this come from? It's not always the white men that have these amazing inventions like our textbooks like to portray them as. It's not always white men doing these amazing things. A lot of the stuff black members of the community have done and white people get the, you know, the face of it um, when it's someone else or they're just, whitewashed and they're not even included in the conversation at all. Um, so that's why I mentioned Shirley Ann Jackson. That was during the time where I wanted to be an engineer and she sort of inspired me in that sense. And she's given, been awarded so many things because of her hard work within her field. And then the third person I decided to um, research was Nina Simone. I wanted to focus on music um, because the black community definitely contributes to the culture of music and how it has evolved today. Um, and there's this sort of stereotype that the black community only likes to make music within certain genres like rap, hip hop, um, R&B, those are our only focuses, which is not the case, especially with country music or classical music. There's this idea that only white musicians do that, um, which is again, not the case. And we, I feel like we have evolved since um, 
earlier times in terms of like promoting musicians that are a part of marginalized communities or BIPOC folk, especially, um, but black musicians as well. Um, but one person I did want to talk about was Nina Simone. She is a favorite of mine. Um, my mom made me listen to her all the time and she has an amazing voice. Um, she was born in 1933 and passed away in 2003. Um, but she used her voice to not only, you know, express her talents and talk about heartbreak, um, but she also spoke about the struggles of being an individual within the black community. Um, so she has this quote um, and I like it because she did a lot of classical music, which is sort of out of the stereotype that the black community are sort of put into in terms of music. So she said, I have spent many years pursuing excellence because that is what classical music is all about. Now it was dedicated to freedom and that was far more important. So she used her skills within music to talk about the struggles within the civil rights movement, the black struggle as a whole, um, and just was one of many musicians that are talented and have involved what music is today because of the work of the past. So I did want to mention them. Um, so those are my three specific points. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to bring light to those people because most of you guys will probably know them, um, which is fine. Um, but some people don't. So it's just good to you know recognize those voices too. And it's certainly interesting. I'm not sure if it was something intentional on your part, but the three figures that you mentioned are all Black women. I had a, actually a pretty, I had like a list of five at first and I sort of narrowed it down to three, but I guess that that makes sense. I mean, me being a Black woman, I feel like it's really hard. You know, I was raised in an elementary school that was, I was always the minority per se. I was one of like a handful of women of color in my class and that sort of really this like it just didn't really help when it came to my education because there was a lot of Eurocentric values within my textbooks like you talked about earlier and it sort of portrayed the idea of like there aren't people that look like me that do amazing work and that contribute to black excellence or that contribute to American society or what we see as today um, which was a really it was really hard because but I didn't understand that it was the textbook and it wasn't the off it was the authors of the books doing it it wasn't it, was, it didn't mean that it wasn't true. Um, so I feel like I make a conscious effort, even like within my own work of social justice or just going to class or like being active that, yes, there are so many, trying to find examples of people that look like me so that me, you know, younger people, younger than me, my future kids, they can see someone that looks like them in the media within all aspects of society um, and someone that they can connect to. And that's something that a lot of white counterparts can always find. Um, within their communities, but we need to make sure that marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, and more specifically Black communities have access to these people that they can look up to and motivate them to go into fields that are systematically meant to oppress them um, and sort of dismantle it themselves. So that's sort of, that's why probably that I um, chose three Black women. Yeah, I, I definitely can see where you're coming from. And I was, you know, reading about Black History Month, how it comes about, or how it came about, and I feel like there shouldn't even be an argument of why is there a Black History Month, because like you mentioned, you know, whiteness has always been celebrated, right? It's day-to-day, -day, you know, they don't have to, um, in that way, try to advocate for themselves or um, fight for representation in textbooks and in classrooms, and so um, I find it vital for the audience here to know why 
you chose those figures. And with Madam CJ Walker, I watched the Netflix series. I binge watch watched it all at once because Octavia Spencer, for one, she's a really really good actress. But also because of the history of um how she how she started to have her own hair care and, and business. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to bring out this like bonus, um, black woman role model, who is her daughter, which is her real name is Alayla, but she has a different name in the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's not only an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, which is very rare during their times. Um, she also started a literary society called the Dark Tower, which is designed mm-hmm. to foster young black creatives. And I think, in a way. We covered this in a previous episode with um, Ken Brighton and Kim Wen that Black women has been the pillar for many, many movements um, and many success of those movements that we see today. And so talking about celebrating Black excellence, I think we talked a little bit about it, but would you want to um, talk more about what does Black excellence refer to and also what's the purpose that we celebrate um, black excellence? Yes. So, okay. That's a good question. I feel like we just need to recognize that our country, the Western Hemisphere, whatever you would like to call it, has a ton of work to do when it comes to systematic racism, institutional structures meant in order to continuously oppress the Black community specifically. It is historical and it affects us today. However, that me- that doesn't mean that Black people in the Black community are defined by their trauma. Um, This includes the historical oppression and individual struggles that they deal with from day to day. We're not defined by that. And I feel like making opportunities or sharing light of the, you know, the excellence that is actually happening within our communities when society is always trying to make it seem like we aren't doing anything or we get handouts or we're lazy or we don't succeed in anything. We just take things like those stereotypes are dismantled by uplifting these people who are, you know, dismantling or like dismantling the stereotype. Um, They are fighting against, you know, what is set in place in order to make us continuously think that. Because even as a five years old, I was, you know, in class, like we would have art class and I would draw myself as a lighter complexion young girl, because I thought that that's what society expected me to do. And I had a good upbringing and I had family um, that sort of, you know, raised me out of that mindset, even though I was in that mindset for school, but not everyone has access to that support system. So using black excellence through the media, through news outlets, through textbooks, or just books in general, it allows for people who might not have access to that uplifting voice within the black community like to sort of support them and find that confidence within themselves to actually see it or like see some portrayal of themselves within real life or like reality or so just something to look up to i feel like a lot of black women lack that too um or they're just like yeah so that's pretty much how i would answer it they're more than their trauma and we need more we need more support in order to see it it's more of an equity thing because white people get to see their successes all the time there's there's no there's no need for white excellence because it exists every day within all aspects of our lives and every the black community needs more of that because that's we're not within the standard that's you know supported all the time 
yeah, it's like when you talk about representation, right? That you have an, you had an interest in engineering, and when you found Shirley Ann Jackson, it gave you hope, right? It gave you hope that you can do it. You can go to MIT. You can go to the best schools for engineering, and that's the importance of representation and also celebrating Black excellence. And you mentioned um, that Black women are more than their trauma. Would you wanna elaborate what that um, actually means? Yeah. So. Um, there's a term that I learned pretty early on within um, my life and it's called massage noir. Um, normally it's, well, to define it simply, it's a combination of sexism and racism that black women specifically experience. Um, and it's sort of shown within a multitude of outlets when it comes to um, any violence that we experience that these two forms of oppression um, lays heavy on us. Um, where we hold ourselves responsible or we have to like hold ourselves to a higher standard than other people because of those stereotypes and oppression outlets. Um, so I guess in or Black women specifically, when it comes to our trauma, there aren't, hmm, I guess it's like, yes, we experience those things, but we're more than that too. We have these experiences that we have to deal with on the regular, but that doesn't mean that we're not human, that we don't have other successes that we go through every day. Like that doesn't mean that we're defined by the things that oppress us. We are, we're human just like every other individual, just like you're able to separate some things from others, um, for other communities, you have to hold black women to that same expectation because we can't always be this strong women and we can be a successful woman and still experience struggles within our community. Um, so just having those nuances and really understanding that is really important, especially for black women, because we experience a lot more within the medical field, within you know a lot of outlets that other communities might not have to experience, but that doesn't mean that we, again, aren't human and we don't have nuances. Um, so I guess that's sort of what I meant by that too. Yeah, when you talk about the medical disparities, we see that now, right? With not just COVID hitting BIPOC communities, especially Black and Indigenous communities, disproportionately higher than other communities, but also with the vaccines that you are, or rather the Black community is receiving at a lower rate. In fact, I read an article just a few days ago that um, because there's no not much regulation set in place that white folks are starting to move out of their residences and move into places where there's more vaccines which tend to be black folks and I think I read this article about New York where um, the vaccines for this for for this neighborhood which is majorly Latin Latin or Latinx mm -hmm. um, were taken over by white folks and so, um, it's something to keep in mind that race is not just about the difference in treatment um, between people of different races, but it is systemic. And what we mean by systemic is that it hits Black folks, Indigenous folks, and people of color differently in all aspects mm -hmm. of our lives. And you mentioned um, you were actually the first person that really exposed me to the idea of adultism. And since we're on the topic of, you know, Black women and misogynoir, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how Black girls are seen um, 
as more mature than they are? Um, yeah, so just to define what adultism is um, for people who don't know, um, it's the idea that adults feel like because they have experienced more life in terms of age, that that means that younger people or like young people under the age of 18, however you wanna define young people, don't have knowledge on certain topics, um, aren't educated enough to like fight against something that they feel like is wrong. Like it's just basically an excuse to make people, young people feel like they're stupid until they actually become adults. Um, that's when they're recognized as someone that's valid. So it takes the validity away from young people. Um, so when talking about black girls specifically, um, there's this idea of that there, and there's a lot of research going into it too, but this is just from my perspective. Um, black girls are seen in a more mature light more frequently than any other um, ethnicities or races of young girls. Um, there's this hypersexualization of black girls for such a young age um, that when, if they, excuse me, this is like, a, if this triggers anyone, like, um, I'm just going to preface it there. But like, if they were potentially experiencing any sexual violence or um, anything of that nature, there are so many, there's a list of excuses that are made be, um, because that they are black girls. They're like, oh, well, she shouldn't have dressed like that, or her body is very different. Black girls might have different body types from black from other girls within and they that can't be used as an excuse to still continue to do that um or when a black girl speaks up and they're an activist within any type of way and they show you know immense amount of passion um white folks or like white adults might be like oh why is she so angry so like just using the you know the stereotypes against black girls from a young age and then how that sort of you know, evolves as they get older to mistreatment within the medical field, like we talked about earlier. Like if you want to have kids not getting proper treatment when you're hospitalized compared to other people, um, a higher risk of dying when giving childbirth um, is something that's very prevalent, having to fight against your doctor and almost threaten their jobs in order for them to treat you the same way that they would treat another patient. Um, it's just very, it's very evolutional. Um, so it's just, I guess, in terms of adultism, it really starts from a young age for more specifically black girls, not believing them, finding excuses to like oppress them. And then that sort of transitions into, you know, just the normal misogynoir that they experience within all day, days of life. Yeah, it almost seems like a full circle moment for me in the worst way when you talk about evolution, that Black girls grow up really quickly in that way because they are sexualized so young. And then they grow up and then they become adults and then they are policed on their hair, they're policed on how they should talk, right? The angry black woman trope. And I think that evolution in that way is a physical manifestation right of oppression I think when we use the word oppression people will always be like oh it's a buzzword I kind of know what it means but I don't really see it and I hope for folks who are listening in that if you think about it this is one of the ways you see or you feel or you experience uh, oppression um, faced by your black peers and so I think that's a great point to point out and so, you know, talking about 
celebrating black excellence and um at the start you know for for the land and acknowledgement i mentioned the Tulsa Mexico black wall street i think because of the erasure of black history it makes it very difficult for black people to prove their worth in that way like when i read more about the Tulsa massacre it's not just a massacre of black folks but you legit have a Wall Street. You have your own businesses, you have your own banks, you have yourself sustainable and and you got torn down. And it's it's just a mind-boggling to me how much people would do to maintain power. And do you think that's a similar thing that we see today? Or do you think the way racism has been shown is has morphed in that way i think it's a combination of yes and no i think that we've done a really we've come a long way since then i don't think we're in the position where we were where we had black wall street they destroyed our entire economy like that's just something that is really hard to come back from and there are still justifications for why they did that that's there's no justification for that um I think in terms of we're doing, I see a lot of black owned businesses that are being promoted a lot more out there, which is amazing. And I try to make sure that I find resources or like find businesses that would support what I would need on a day to day basis first before, you know, going to like, you know, the corporate businesses that are constantly making money. Um, but, you know, we still have, you know, Amazon, we still have Apple, we still have a lot of, you know, companies that are profiting off of you know what black people use and it's just they're still making a, a dollar and they don't really contribute to you know black lives matter or anything like relating to you know marginalized communities so i feel like there are a lot of pluses because i would go to a black business black owned business first before i would go to like a corporate one um, but that doesn't change the fact that like i'm only one person um, there are still other corporate businesses that are still making a ton of money, money and profiting off of, you know, killing off our black economy. <laughs> so that's, I guess that's my answer to that. So, you know, we've talked about the past with highlighting black historical figures that we should know and the presence with the importance of celebrating black excellence. Yeah. So let's look forward to the future. You mentioned talking about supporting black businesses. So as a young Black American woman, how can the society and especially non-Black folks like myself empower, support, and uplift um, people like you in your journey? Yeah, so I guess one way of saying it, and you're doing a great job of it, is saying the word Black when referring to Black women. Um, like if we're, if we identify as Black, call us Black. Like don't sugarcoat it like we're part of the black community and is pr we're proud to do so so not being afraid of the word i think is the first step in the right direction um in terms of you know just i think of it from a day-to-day -day life standpoint you know today like today alone i went in i'm a law major um so i went into two classes today that you know were they're predominantly white and i go into the class and i know for a fact that I will be one of a handful of BIPOC folk that are in my class. And if I even wanna go further and say a woman within that community is gonna be a smaller number. Um, so with that in mind, we have to understand, you know, when we're 
taking our textbooks and when we're reading them and when we're studying for our classes, like who's the author? Do that extra research of saying like, who's the author? What's their background? Do you think their, in, their background could influence the information that you're receiving? And if, it, if you think it is, do that extra research into like, maybe there are other perspectives that are unheard of um, within the same subject and like hear those voices. And maybe like within just having conversations with people within the black community, really listen to them. And I don't mean like just looking them in the face and just like, you know, like hearing it, like really take it into account um, within your daily life. And that means actually caring about people um, and how people experience things. Everyone has a form of, I shouldn't say everyone, but like they're, most people experience oppression in some way. Um, you know how it feels to not feel included or feel valid. So I feel like just taking that same feeling of empathy and applying it to other people, be like, think of other people. <laughs> like if this were to happen to you, it wouldn't feel great. So don't do those same things to other people and not expect them to feel some type of way about it. Um, in terms of any racism that shows up within the school, within music, within you know celebrities, um, I see this a lot where white people or non-black folk have a lot to say about someone's apology or someone's recognition of their racism. I think listen to the black community first. Um, you don't, a lot of non-black folks shouldn't have an opinion on black people's own businesses. So I just feel like, you know, listen to what we have to say. Um, your opinion doesn't matter because you don't experience racism to that degree of the black community. So you shouldn't have a say in it. Um, and I guess, yeah, honestly, listening, having conversations about it, asking questions if you want to. I'm not your teacher. I can't teach you the Black experience, but just asking questions, like hearing perspectives and wanting to have conversations, I'm open to. That doesn't necessarily everyone within the Black community is willing to do so. Um, so just like, you know, balance, I guess, and just, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say on that follow-up question from that because you talk about in that way boundaries right everyone has different ways of activism and advocating for themselves so you know there has been a lot of message going out there on social media that oh you know like you mentioned do your own homework don't put the burden and the work on your black peers for mm -hmm. example asking them about racism and questions like that you can do your own homework online and and then there's a school of thought it's like well we should have a conversation mm -hmm. if we don't have a conversation then how are number one non-black folks going to learn and number two have that have that interaction and that community and that bonding so what are your thoughts on these two in that way conflicting school of thought yeah i mean i think that within the black community there are definitely nuances there are some people that are willing to have conversations with non-Black folks about racism. And most of the time, either they're, you, you ask them, are you willing to, or you do your own research and most of the people who feel like they wanna educate non-Black folk on it will put their opinions on Google. Google is, is a resource that you can use. Um, so I feel like it, it's both like, being like, are you comfortable with this? Or like having a conversation about racism. And if you're not, you feel like you're not, like there are some people who don't wanna teach you. And sometimes I feel like that too, because you know, having to consistently advocate for your equal rights because you're black, it's tiring. 
um, and you get burnt out and I shouldn't have to do anything. I should want, like I can want to, but I don't have to. So finding a balance, do your own research first if you're non-Black, you know, find resources and then, but everyone's different. So if people are comfortable, ask the question of, are you comfortable? Don't just dive into a conversation about racism and assume that every Black person is gonna feel comfortable having the conversation. So yeah, I think it's a combination of both because I respect both. I respect, you know, doing your own research. It's there and also hearing from Black folks if they want to talk about it. And continuing off of that, what do you think about non-Black folks who say, for example, with most recently police brutality, what do you, what, what, what are your thoughts about people who have this thought that, you know, we can agree to disagree? Mm-hmm. Like I see, not me, but you know, acting as somebody else who is non-black and and trying to learn. Because I oftentimes hear that you know they would say, "I see that there is a difference, a disparity in treatment between <coughs> excuse me, black folks and BIPOC folks, mm-hmm. um, and white people with the police and law enforcement." However you know, the typical arguments, like not all police are bad. And um, if we don't have law enforcement, who's going to keep law and order? Do you actually leave a conversation as if, as is when the person says, well, we can agree to disagree. I agree with the differences in treatment, but I don't think we should defund the police. I don't think we should invest less in the police and we should just keep it as that what do you what do you think of those conversations i think generally it's good to have conversations i think if you're non-black that's just you need to before having the conversation recognize that you have privilege just being able to have an opinion on you know defunding the police that's a privilege because there are people who myself included, had the age of eight, nine, 10, have to have a conversation with their parents about how to have conversations with the police. If you're pulled over, you know, I got my, like, everyone has a point where they get their license. Um, Not every family has to have the conversation of when you get pulled over by the police, this is what you need to do. Have your hands on the dashboard. Like, not everyone has to have that conversation. So I think when talking about police brutality and saying we have to agree to disagree. There are just some things that you're just not going to experience, period, that I have to endure because I am Black, especially when it comes to with the police. There are historical reasons as to why the police exists today and why it there's this idea of immunity surrounding the police that, you know, they were you know, slave patrol, like trying to make sure that like slaves didn't run away. That was the origin of why the police exists and it transitions into what it is now. So I think even like being non-Black or more specifically white and being like, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree about police brutality. And I feel like you shouldn't have to defund the police. Well, I mean, I don't even think we're on the same playing field in terms of having a conversation about police brutality because you don't have to experience that. So my, I don't want to say your opinion is not valid to me because I feel like everyone should have a right to an opinion, but at the same time, defunding the police doesn't necessarily directly affect you either way. So it's just like hard to like have a conversation about it if they're not willing. I don't know. It's just, it's a slippery slope because it's just like, 
I'm not, we're, we're on two different experiences. We experience two different things. The fact that you even have the ability to disagree with me on that is a privilege in itself because that means you never had to experience like police brutality in general or even preparing for a potential moment where you would have to be a victim of police brutality. Um, I seek your opinion because I, I do think that, you know, it's like a growing pain moment. And I think at the same time, like you mentioned, not having to experience it and being able to have objectivity, you know, quote unquote, to be like, to be objective about an issue that affects other people is a way to see if you have privilege or not. I think, you know, one way I put it is that we all are able to see perspectives. Like you see that not all police are, are bad. I see not police, not all police are bad. But the, the difference is that a, you you don't get to experience the side of, like you mentioned, poli- being able to shout at the police, being able to, to, to do things that white folks can do to the police. And so when, when you have basically, you know, the audience out there, when you have a conversation with Black, Indigenous, especially, and people of color about race and anything about race. It's not about having different perspectives, necessarily. We all see the perspective that you you see. We don't get to experience it. Mm-hmm. The oppression means that we only experience one side of it, and often it's the, for the lack of a better word, the bad side of yeah. things. Yeah. So my last question would be I always say it's my last question and then questions pop up but I'll keep it to my last question if there's um Q&A coming up um from the chat is everything truly about race yes I yes this country was made on the idea that some people are superior than others based on the color of their skin and that started from the day this country was ratified whatever you like that that was created the day it was here. So every decision that's made, whether it's in the government, whether it's in any laws that are made, whether it's like signs that are outside, the people that live here, it's all comprised of race. And so when I walk into a room and when I live my life, the first thing that people see is the color of my skin. Therefore, that means that any decision or any life instance is influenced by my race. When I get a driver's license, when I get any type of anything, I can, I can of course opt out. Like if I'm applying to, well, even when I was applying to school, they asked for my race, I'm black. That could influence what schools I get into and what schools I don't. Of course, they're gonna say that there aren't technically, they can't technically discriminate based on race, but that's definitely an influencing factor. So race is in everything that we do. Oppression is in everything that we do. You can't hide it. You can't be like, well, race isn't everything. Again, that's a form of privilege because you people might not look at you and not you, of course, but just like you generally and be like, oh, well, she's not going to be able to do this. She's not smart enough to go into this field. So I'm going to make it hard for her to, or she doesn't make sense. She's not smart. She's just some pretty girl. The fetishization of black women, like all of that, <laughs> that's my life. That's my day-to-day life. Every choice that I make is influenced by my race. So race is everything to me because that's the first thing that you see when you look at me. Um, and that is gonna impact me until the day that I die. You, like I can't get away from it. Therefore, like it's, it's my every day. 
um, I don't have that privilege where I can just not be white um, or not be black one day. I can choose to be white or um, another race just based on that. So um, yeah, it, it's every day, it's everything. I hope that gives the audience a clear idea of what systemic and institutionalized racism actually means. I'm just trying to address, you know, some of the common arguments when people have when we bring up the topic of race mm -hmm. and racism. So um, thank you for that explanation. Thank you for your time. So I guess one last, <laughs> that's not the last question, but since people don't have questions. It's okay. <laughs> that's fine. I'll go with one last question. Um, what do you think allies of the Black community should do better at? Um, colorism um, and that internalized hatred towards Black women not accepting uh, certain aspects of the Black community. Um, when we say Black Lives Matter, that includes all Black lives. That includes Black people that I identify as LGBT. That includes Black women of all colors and backgrounds. Um, I just think that, I, I guess I want to touch on colorism because I, I have a darker complexion. Um, I identify as Black. That's something that I used to struggle with when I was younger. Um, in terms of like my complexion, I always wanted to be lighter because I thought that's what would deem me as beautiful and pretty when that's not the case at all. Um, I think that it's very easy, especially with social media. I see sometimes in the black community where there are some black men and sometimes black women too, um, or just black people in general, they like to make fun of darker complexion women or like make fun of their appearance, like use phrases that are racist that like, uh, it's it's very hard. Um, so I think that's one thing that, because you're, you're black, we have to accept all black people for who they are. You can't pick and choose who's black and like who's not, you know what I mean? It's just, that's pretty hard. Um, I think that's, but the, again, I can't, the reason why we even have colorism to begin with is because of white structures. So I can't be like, fix this stuff within the black community when it's not technically our fault to begin with. I think we can like, of course, have conversations in order to like better that, better it so that like more black people or like even like in the music industry like it's so easy to make fun of a black woman who's a musician um then it is like it's so quick to like call her a monkey like that's always someone's first thing for darker complexion women and it's so frustrating because you know you wouldn't do that to someone else or when having conversations about your preference when it comes to relationships um being like, like invalidating black women and saying that we're not beautiful um, when we are. So yeah, it's, it's not a lot, but it's like a lot of the converse or the lot of the issues within the black community is because of white people. It's because of the standards that white people set and black, some black people are influenced by that a lot more, which leads to them treating other people within their own community differently or worse or just awful in general. Um, so yeah, that's a great point. And I have a question that came in I have two questions, but I'll just do the first question because it's related to what you just mentioned. Since you're talking about beauty, can you speak to how colorism and black fishing intersect and the appropriation of blackness by non-black folk, mostly white folk? 
we have touched on it a bit already, but I'd love to hear more. Sure. Yes, definitely. I like that question. Um, okay. So there's a lot. It, it frustrates me a lot because there's so much going on. I, I'm going to use the Kardashians as an example because I feel like they're a very common um, group of individuals that do a lot of black fishing um, and sort of reap the benefits of what they do. Um, so in terms of black fishing, I am very, I, it gets me angry. <laughs> it's one of my tipping points, but I like talking about it because it's necessary. You know, some people might look at me or any dark, darker complexion woman and be like, oh, she's, she's ugly. Or like, just like, you're, you're just so quick to, I guess, demean who they are. But if a white person tried to like take on those same characteristics, like lip, get lip fillers or like change anything about their appearance or, you know, get um, spray tans, those things, um, then they reap the benefits and they're seen as beautiful because they're not black. I think there's nothing wrong with getting plastic surgery or doing whatever you want with your body, it's yours. You're beautiful regardless, you're beautiful with it, without it, it's your choice regardless. I think the issue comes in when there's a history of, you know, uh, menstrual shows and, you know, people dressing up in blackface um, in order to make fun of black people. Um, that still happens, of course, and then it sort of transitioned into people you know, taking black features and applying it to themselves and they get to be seen as beautiful while at the same time, people who naturally have those same features are seen as ugly or you make up excuses for why they experience violence or things like that. Um, it's really uh, frustrating. So, and especially a lot of these, I shouldn't say all, but a good amount of these people who do black fishing don't at the same time acknowledge Black Lives Matter or acknowledge um, racism and how it impacts the black community. I think they're more focused on like getting more popularity and they get to profit off of things that others are oppressed by. Um, so yeah, I think colorism isn't cute. I never liked colorism. Um, I just, it, it, it irks me because I feel like every black woman, every black person is beautiful and using race or racism in a way to like undermine someone's appearance or make someone feel like they're not beautiful. It's just like, it just irks me. It gets me so mad. Um, but yeah, I guess that's what I, how I would answer it. I like that question. Thank you for asking. Yeah, we did an episode on cultural appropriation last year for season one. And I think what people don't get about appreciation versus appropriation is the power dynamics. Mm. Like you mentioned, right? Because of this structure that we have um, white folks have power and so to be able to paint their faces black for Halloween and, mm -hmm. and do blackface and not face any repercussions or spray tanning like you mentioned themselves and to appear to be healthy, have a healthy glow but really is appropriating of blackness and yet condemning blackness not just in the workplace but in everyday life is um, appropriation is something to think about. And we mentioned, you know, during our conversation, talking about non-Black folks educating themselves before um, or in conjunction with, of course, with permission, having a conversation. And so we have a question here. What books would you recommend for people who would like to be better informed on matters of race or anti-racist practice? Huh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. 
I'm going to be completely honest because I don't, well, like more specifically racism towards the black community. I don't have like resources that I would like rely on because I don't technically have, to, well, I shouldn't say I don't have to, but because I am black and I experience it, it's pretty easy to understand like the black experience because I have it. Um, but I think any, I mean, I really like Michelle Obama's books. Well, she she doesn't necessarily talk about race all the time, but I, I think she definitely has a perspective that is um, that's helpful in that. Um, but just like overall, generally, because I don't like I, I actually experience it, like I experience racism. I don't have a lot of resources and I'm sorry, um, but that's how I would answer that. I'm sorry about that. I guess I'll answer that since I'm a non-black person trying to, sorry, I kind of, when you, when you answer the question, I kind of realized, okay, that's probably a question I should answer. Um, okay, so first off, personally, this is my personal opinion. I don't find White Fragility to be great. I think White Fragility, it would be a great book for like people who still don't don't see color or like don't agree that racism exists and get very defensive when talking about race but it's not a great book excuse me simply because it's a white author again back to i was talking about the sources right who 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 wrote that book the author has had a history of benefiting off um this book that is supposed to dismantle the system um you can read on more about about that and um, basically, I'm also hearing from uh, my Black peers that they personally do not agree with using white fragility as anti-racism uh, material. So that's one book I want to put out there that I, I personally don't um, prefer. Other books I recommend that can replace that would be Me and White Supremacy, um, How to Be Anti-Racist. I think that book um, and so you want to talk about race. I think those two books really kind of changed, at least for me, my mindset towards racism. I think um, racism is not, being racist is not just an identity. Of course, there are people you know, that we see on the news in the past that are like, outright racist and white supremacist. But in everyday life, the reason why it's so hard to dismantle racism is because we ourselves have biases that continue to perpetuate and uphold this system and so we are all complicit if not if we are not anti-racist mm -hmm. and so once again me and white supremacy how to be an anti-racist and so you want to talk about race would be the three books that i would recommend people to start with and then from there you know your algorithm will do its thing and continue to recommend you a lot more um, materials and also joining, um, especially on LinkedIn now, there's a lot of, there's this, this new app called Clubhouse. I think that's basically um, different spaces and and you can go in and listen in, but don't speak if it's not your space. And I think that's a great way to learn to um, follow people like um, Abby Adamson, follow follow Black, basically Black leaders who are speaking on the issue. And, and really have that introspective moment with yourself, you know. So that's my second re recommendation. And my third recommendation, um, it's not entirely tied to racism, talking specifically about racism per se, but talking about the medical disparities. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is one book that I consistently recommend. Um, it's about this author who really wants to uncover who is behind, who, who, 
who is the owner of these cells called HeLa cells that actually um, because of because of its immortal life, the ability for the cell to reproduce on its own, they were able to do like cancer tests on it and things like that. And the cells were taken without the person's permission. And they basically found out that it's a black woman. And I'm almost spoiling the story for you. But yes, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is um, a book that kind of like added a dimension for me with racism and anti-racism. Um, and particularly because the author is white and she's writing her experiences of trying to reach the family and things like that, that you you understand, you will see the nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to play with race. Little fires everywhere. Um, not exactly, this is more about, this is more fiction. Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I think these two books, um, you will not like it if you if you have not basically done your work on like basic, the basics, so-called the basics of racism. But if you have, and you feel like you're confident enough, you can read those two books. I think they would give you, for me, kind of, hits me in the gut when when I realized that oh my god I've been doing that too and that can that makes me complicit and how do I undo that so that's a long answer but those are my book recommendations I'll put in the resources that I re- that I recommended and also what I mentioned some of the resources of the black historical figures that you can read up on yeah so um, we have another question I think that we often focus on systemic racism as an American phenomenon can you speak on the impact of global colonialism and its relationship to racism and how can we confront it on a larger scale? That is a really good question. I think that I agree. We definitely talk about systematic racism like within the United States because it's easy, we live here. Um, and I also think that it's very important to talk about you know, the imperialism that happened in other countries um, and how that sort of has impacted the impacted the stereotypes within other countries too. Um, like, for example, countries in Africa um, were imperialized by Great, Great Britain later on um, after slavery. And then now all of a sudden there's this, first of all, a lot of people don't know that Africa is a continent, not a country, um, which sort of, I, I, I sort of think that it contributes to the idea of racism because you don't even take the further education to actually know, especially within Black people and like Black people's history that it's a continent, not a country. Um, But I think also because of that imperialism that has happened within those other countries, it sort of has led to these systems of government that accommodate to Eurocentric governments um, that are in like European countries as well. Um, so like a lot, if there's like a lot of dictatorship uprisings that are happening in those countries or like just dictatorship dynamics that are happening, it is normally, there's normally a relationship with a European like leader, like within their, their countries um, sort of in play with that. And also just in terms of religion, um, a lot of aspects of Christianity um, or like how religion is like, inf- is, religion is very influential. Um, So using Christianity, which was like Eurocentric at the time to like influence, make that the primary focus of religion within a lot of these African countries is prominent. It's not not to say that religion is bad, but um, there's this white perspective on it that could be harmful. Um, So I think how can we confront it? Honestly, just I I don't want to say like do your research, but like and it's a thing for me too. like I have to hold myself accountable and make sure that like I'm the best activist that I can be 
um, and not only become well-versed or like do extra research on subjects that might not directly affect me, um, or might be affecting other countries and doing research there and like seeing what's happening in other countries because that's just as harmful um, and we need to be well-versed in that too so we can be the best advocates possible. I think making sure that, especially when you don't, I think everyone's an activist in their own way. We all have beliefs. Um, we all care about people to a certain degree. Um, just doing that extra research, just fighting for it. Like, I think that especially it's very easy to advocate for communities that directly affect you. Like if you, if you identify with a community, it's easier to advocate for yourself because it's easier to advocate for yourself if you don't necessarily. But I think again, just doing the research on experiences that don't directly affect you um, or that you don't identify with is really helpful so that like, you can still bring light to a lot of issues that are negative that might not affect you too. I don't think I answered your question fully, but that's the best way I can answer it. I think that's a big question, right? How can we confront it on a larger scale? I think like what Arya said, it's very important to be involved in your current community. And if you're an international student like myself or your, or your parents, grandparents have ties to where they arrive from, and um, like, so personally for me, I am Singaporean and we were once colonized by the British not long ago. And like what Arya has covered, you know, it, it does not just tie into racism, but also colorism. So in my country, I, exp I, I experienced a lot of, even with my own family, they'll be like, oh, you know, you have to be fair to be attractive. And, and um, this is how you be a woman and, and things like that. And so, and also with religion, with Christian crystal centricity and also christian missions right so um that's a really good question but it's also a very big question so you know like what aria say do your research do your homework and if you have um ties to a certain country or a certain community that you want to leave an impact on um see if there's anybody any non-profit causes or any grassroots organizations already doing the work and join them yeah. and i think the most important conversations normally happen at home happens with our family members, you know, um, having that difficult conversation, um, essentially trying to explain to them that, you know, you're, you're really complicit in this whole system mm -hmm. um, and really questioning that, that narrative. And so, yeah, we are almost at time. Aria, so once again, thank you so much for your time. Do you have um, any last advice or last words that you would like um, our audience to know today? Yes. Um, well, again, first of all, thank you so much for even having me here. Um, I've never done like a podcast like this before, so it was really exciting to do it. Um, I think for me, I am not a spokesperson for the entire Black community. I am one individual that has opinions on <laughs> Black perspectives that another black individual might not agree with when it comes to our and again that's just based on experience so i don't think leaving this like of course if things resonate with you like that's amazing that's why i came on i want to like hopefully something resonated with you guys um but i i don't think you should use my opinions and be like well this is like your opinion's wrong because aria said this no i'm just one person i'm just one person um I'm, I can't speak for an entire community because I'm not a community, I'm just one individual. Um, so you can take or leave what my opinions are, but again, 
hopefully something resonated. I'm I'm just really happy that I was able to speak on some of the things because, you know, sometimes you go through life and you just sort of deal with them, um, deal with like the hits and it's just life because that's what you have to do or that's what we're seen to do. Um, but it's it's good to actually talk about it because I'm like, oh, I'm not like insane. So it's, it's like good to hear, like not insane, but like I'm not the only one experiencing this. Um, so it's good to hear from other people. So if I could be that for someone else, then I'm willing to do that. Um, but again, I appreciate everyone for listening and for Cindy for bringing me on. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. And I, and I think that's a great reminder that, you know, the Black community is a, is a diaspora. It's not a monolith. And so really questioning ourselves. And I think it's a great first step for the audiences who came in here today or who are listening into this at a later time this is the first step if not one of the steps they are taking right now um, to fight that bias and to fight this system of racism and white supremacy 